Hey gang, thanks for listening to this special bonus episode of The Hustle. Today, our guest is one of the most in-demand and successful session guitarists of all time, Tim Pierce. Now, Tim, he's done so much, and we try to cover a lot of it in here. Uh, he probably burst onto the scene or had his first big taste of success when he was playing guitar for Rick Springfield in the early 80s, during like that peak, hard to hold Rick Springfield era, living in Oz, you know what I mean? So, but from there, he goes on to work with a ton of people. We talk about John Waite, we talk about Crowded House. He worked on the debut Crowded House album, which is my favorite album of all time. Uh, he worked on Michael Jackson's Black or White uh, and the Dangerous album. Now, let me tell you real quick, I've been holding on, holding on to this interview for a while, and it was done before the Leaving Neverland uh, documentary came out. So we don't actually discuss anything about, you know, those allegations against Michael Jackson in here. This is just more a straightforward music conversation because that's all there was back when we did this. There's also a lot of Kenny Loggins. There's Bruce Springsteen. There's our old friend Terrence Trent Darby. There's Seal, there's Roger Waters, there's Meatloaf, there's Rod Stewart, and there's Runaway that he played guitar on by Bon Jovi. So let me tell you, this conversation took place in two parts. Uh, he only had about 45 minutes to chat the first time, and we got through a few things, not a lot. He was gracious enough to give me a second you know, chunk of time. We got through about another half hour, 45 minutes there too. He unfortunately doesn't remember a lot. And you guys know that I, I love hearing these stories of the you know collaborations and everything, but he's done so much and worked on so many different things that they all kind of you know blur together. Having said all that, these days he is primarily focused on his instructional guitar video business. I'll let him explain it all to you better than I can right here, but it's fascinating stuff how this guy, Tim has, sort of rebranded and relaunched and pivoted into this new aspect of the business that has been very successful and sustaining for him. It's great. So this is actually, this conversation takes place actually in two parts. There might even be a little bit of crossover in some of the things or stories that he tells. And uh, we'll have a little intermission in the middle where I'll do some more, you know, some of that midsection review reading, et cetera, et cetera, that we do. But anyway, uh, and a huge thanks to our listener, Uwe Reif, out of Germany, for requesting Tim Pierce. Crazy story. He requested Tim. I had been meaning to get around to, uh, to tracking him down. And then I got an email from his publicist saying, hey, are you interested in all in talking with Tim Pierce? Absolutely, I am. It worked out perfectly. So anyway, hope you enjoy this. This is Tim calling from his home in L.A. So here's what you got signed up for. I host a weekly music podcast called The Hustle, and we focus on musicians maintain careers over the long haul. You know, how do you make it work for years and years and years? And right. you, I think, are in a very, uh, very interesting position because through you being an enterprising type person, you have managed to pivot, pivot from being this sought after session musician to being this... Uh, I mean, you're teaching guitar basically online, which is something that I know that a lot of former session musicians would love to do, but you seem to be doing it more successfully than others. How how have you managed to do this? And tell us more about Tim Pierce guitar. Well, um, the way it worked was the music business started to change in the early 2000s, as we all know, and and change is a kind word for, mm. you know, it just, it got more difficult um, because budgets were not as big and, and 
you know, the recording business changed a lot. So I actually, I, I, um, about nine years ago, it was brought to my attention. Some people who were doing online lessons, just video content. So I don't do, there's nothing. I never am one-on-one with students. Mm. I never, my customers, I'll email them. Sometimes I'll call them on the phone, but I never teach one-on-one. The teaching is all done through video and I make videos and then I, I stock my membership site that guitar players can join either yearly or monthly. So there's no personal contact. Um, okay. and, and part of the reason for that is I spent my entire life in client service. As a session musician, I provided a service to clients for, you know, I still do. I did a session today. Mm-hmm. I did one yesterday. I'm, I'm, mm. uh, I do, I still do one session every day usually. Um, mm. but client service means that you have to be there to earn the money. This is a product that is sold to customers. So it sells whether I'm working or not. And it, it sells, you know, I could be sleeping, I could mm-hmm. be in another country mm-hmm. and it'll still sell. So that's, that's a, it's a really nice thing to actually do the work and then have it be separate from the actual work. Yeah. When you say, yeah. I have a lot of questions that stem from this. First of all, tell us you did a session today. I mean, there's, when you do sessions now, it's got to be different than it was back in the 80s. Is, is anyone even paying you for this or is it more of like a like a favor? Um, how, oh, how no, do you... You, don't, you know, it's, it's not as bad as you think. Any oh. session musician who's who's working is getting paid whatever their rate is. Oh, yeah, okay. there's no. Yeah, okay. it's not. Um, I, and I actually charge a high hourly rate because I want to get I, I actually don't pursue sessions anymore. I, I work with the clients that are kind of that I've known for a long time and that are loyal. And if a new client comes, I charge them a high hourly rate or mm-hmm. it's not worth it to me because honestly, my time is better spent from a financial point of view working on the new business because the new business scales. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, I get paid by the hour. Okay. Um, I, I charge a lot and I get paid mm-hmm. by the hour. Uh, for the work I do on sessions. Good. Well, you probably deserve it. You're one of the greatest session musicians in history. So I'm curious how you built your business as it is today to be as successful as it is where maybe some other people may have fallen short or what tips would you, what would you say you did differently that allowed you to be where you are now? Well, let me, before I answer that, let me just continue on the track we were just on and say that Session work has changed. In the 90s, which was my peak, I was working with people who were famous all the mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. who were, you know, basically on the radio. And I don't know what that means anymore, you know, sure. on Spotify or on the right. radio now. But so the thing is, I was doing high profile work. A lot of it was union. Um, and, and there were a lot of long days and, and budgets were big. So you could camp out and do, you know, a, a number of days or even weeks on a record. So mm-hmm. Yes, it was. It was a a big. The music business was huge. The recording business was huge. Yeah. Now, when I do a session, often it's at my house because I I can remove all the costs except for my service. So there's no mm-hmm. cartage. There's no studio. There's no engineer. Mm-hmm. The actual, you know, producer or writer can come here, and I'm the only expense when when one of those sessions happens. Mm-hmm. Now there are still sessions that happen all over town at studios. But okay. there are less guys doing them, and they're usually shorter duration. And mm-hmm. the daily rates are often half what they used to be. Mm-hmm. I, I generally don't do those anymore. I, I, I'll do them for for people I'm really loyal to. If, uh, but um, the way the way I make it work is so that I don't have to drive. I don't have to set up. Yeah. Um, you know, if somebody shows up at my front door, we can be recording within five or ten minutes. 
and then you know I can finish a song maybe in two hours, sometimes in an hour, mm-hmm. and and then and then I can get right back to work on my other business. So okay, what happened was now I can move on. I just wanted to give you a little more background sure. on on you know yes, it has changed a lot. It's it's yeah. it's and also the guitar is not the engine behind popular music no, anymore. It's not, it certainly yeah. is in Nashville. Yeah, but here it's more of a. Um, an event or a seasoning on a song rather yeah. than the engine behind a song. So yeah, I could see that. Um, Do you yeah, ever so, feel uh, like you've sort of a cabin fevered yourself into this? Uh, I mean, do you miss any kind of, you know, the driving or the going to the studio, the, the ceremonial aspects of collaborating with people or are you, cause I've seen some of your videos and you're, you know, you're in this incredibly incredible looking produ- uh studio in your home full of gear everywhere everything you could ever need is right there I, as convenient as that is do you ever miss the interpersonal aspect of it all well the, it is interpersonal because there's always a client i okay i pretty much refuse to work alone when i do recording sessions there's either mm. a client sitting across from me which you can't see uh, all the time yeah. uh, or there's a client on Skype of course when I do the web stuff I'm up here alone but mm-hmm. that's that's different but okay. if I'm doing a session I either require somebody to drive here or I require them to be on Skype so they can have ownership of the parts okay. we create because that's that's really what it is is you do, you want you want to give them only what they want nothing they don't want and I don't mm-hmm. want to spend a half hour on something that they're not going to use okay and and so I actually need them here and so I get that energy and I get that collaboration I've never I've never been one who who missed that era. There are a mm. lot, you know, I enjoy it. When I show up at a session and everybody's there, it's really fun. Yeah. But I, I, I don't miss it. Um okay. there are musicians who do miss it. I, I have some friends who really kind of, you know, wish that was going on, but I'm okay. 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 You mentioned uh what I, this was a question I had for you. What do you miss about those glory days? Is there is it um I don't know. I mean it could be anything. Is it the is it the free meals? Is it the uh, anything hearing yourself on the radio more often than maybe you do now. Is there a perk? I would or- say, I would say the main thing about it is that you were, you were doing music that ended up, you know, it ended up reaching pretty far mm-hmm. and it ended up being, you know, in the top 10 or the top mm-hmm. 40 or the top 100 or ended up on the, on the airwaves. It mm-hmm. ended up yeah. <laughs> being played a lot. And that, that's, that's probably the the, yeah. the biggest loss. And, but, that, you know, that's still going on. So somebody who's – and in Nashville, that system still exists. Mm-hmm. But on, on the West Coast, generally the, the, the people who are, you know, making hits, they don't use a lot of guitar. If they do use guitar, they've got somebody in their circle that they can call mm-hmm. to play guitar. They're not going to seek out a studio specialist. Right. They, they, they've got a couple of people that they really like that are friends or band members or whatever who can come play guitar. Okay. And so this new, um, your new sort of angle or uh, venture business-wise for you and how you market yourself and instructing people and whatnot, that, I mean, not to sound too indelicate, but that's provided a nice living for you. I mean, you're able to continue to lead a comfortable life and have the kind of things you want to have and go on a vacation here and there. Or is it a grind? Is it, uh, is it difficult every day or is it, have you, do you find that you found something successful? Okay, well, it is. It it was the minute I monetized it. I monetized three years ago. I started the actual web venture about eight years ago. Mm. I didn't monetize till about three years ago, and it became a six-figure business the minute I monetized it. Wow, good for you. So man. it's it's well, you know, the thing is, it's 
um, I, I, I built an audience on YouTube prior to that. And so mm-hmm. I was able to launch with, you know, I had an email list of 20,000 guitar players when I launched it. And which has grown to uh, the list has grown to about 60,000 guitar players. But um, mm. I, I launched it to that list. And so I, I actually had built something. You know, I spent quite a bit of money building my YouTube okay. audience, making videos and stuff. But um, the thing about, you know, f- I mean, financially, it would I'd be better off never doing another session again and just oh. concentrate on the web business. It's, really? Because it scales. Yeah, yeah. it scales. It's, just huh. not a, it's not fee for service. It's a product that is sure. um, it's infinite what it can yeah, Re, you know the reach is it? That's fascinating. So, uh, give us a pitch here. If if anyone is listening who's an aspiring guitarist or something like that and wants to, what are they going to come to you and learn? What are the what's the value of them coming and and participating in your business right now? Well, the behind my paywall, I have it grows all the time. I started with a hundred videos and ten hours of content, and now I'm up to a thousand videos and a hundred hours of mm. content, and it's it's really um, really diverse, you know, you have to be able to play. I call it low to high intermediate. You Mm -hmm. have to already be able to play, but maybe you want to rise up to my level, which is not the highest level of guitar by any means, but maybe Mm -hmm. you want to rise up to my level. Uh, and it's just got, you know, studio tips, um, blues lessons, blues, soloing, rhythm guitar Mm -hmm. lessons, uh, gear stuff, interviews. I feature other guitar players. And the thing is, I have a 14-day free trial. So when mm. somebody asks me what it is, I just encourage them to take the free trial. Yeah. And then they can they can cancel and, and Great. opt out if they want. But it, it's it's really I do episodes, and every episode is different and random. It's more like a, you know, an online you know mm-hmm. HBO or something. That's fascinating. Good for you, Tim. Do you um? And I'm curious, what is there a particular style of guitar that you enjoy to play? More than any other. Is it blues? Is it reggae? What is it? Uh, well, my DNA comes from 60s radio. Um, okay. Listening to, so that would have been the Beatles to the Rolling Stones to Motown to James Brown to B.B. King to and then Cream, Hendrix, ZZ Top. Yeah. So it's basically R&B, classic rock. Um, I can certainly play country, the mm-hmm. pop, you know, kind of country that you hear. Mm-hmm. Um but it's basically rock, R&B, okay. and country. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go. I want to talk about your... Uh, I love talking to session musicians because they're always just full of stories. And chances are... And in every situation, I've heard hundreds of songs they've played on. And so I like to hear the stories behind it. In your case in particular, I was thinking about this just a few minutes ago. I think the very the second concert I ever went to was Rick Springfield at the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City in about 1984. And I realized that you probably were playing at that show, right? I was 11 years old. Well, he replaced his band right as right after Jesse's Girl was a hit. Oh, so it could have been on the cusp right before then. But but I joined right at that that moment. Yeah, if, if it it really was, it probably was me. He was promoting Hard to Hold. The movie and yeah, the album me. and yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah so yeah, that would have been yeah, you. So yeah, yeah, I just realized that I've seen you in concert, and it was awesome. you know when I was eleven years old, and <laughs> awesome. uh, yeah, and I got to assume when I go back over your resume, sort of, I'm I'm guessing the break with Rick was sort of the first big step from you know guy from New Mexico that wants to move to L.A. to become a musician to actually being a pro and making a living at this stuff. Was that it? 
Uh, I would say yes. Um, yeah. I did. So I did some stuff right around that time that was concurrent. I did Bon Jovi's first record and the yeah. song Runaway. Runaway ended up on his first record. And then I did a John Waite uh, record called Ignition that's still mm -hmm. a really good sounding record. People talking and they're saying that you're leaving. You're so unhappy with the way that you've been living. And then I did Rick, and um, John Waite asked me to go on the road, but Rick was at his peak at that moment, and I, of course, I just, of course, I said yes immediately. Sure. So tell us, tell us a song that you worked on with Rick that you are particularly proud of. A moment I don't know in those situations if Rick uh, is a monarchy and it, what he says goes, or if it's more democratic than that, and you and you know you kind of bring ideas to the table and he inserts those in songs. Tell us a moment in a song you're particularly proud of. Okay, well, you could do the solo from Love Somebody, which mm. has a, a kind of a fast riff at, at the end of that solo. Um, 
There's another song called Souls that has a really good solo in it. You know, um, I love two, uh, two Souls off Living in, Living in Oz, yeah, right? Exactly. That's one of my exactly. favorite Rick yeah, songs, and it's totally forgotten. I love that song. Yeah, it's, it was an album cut, but it has a pretty solo on it. Yeah. So both of those would be good. He's just like every other artist. When you work with an artist, mm-hmm. they have their ideas of how it should be, but you you actually it's a collaboration between everybody who's in the room. It could be the engineer, the producer, and the artist. It could be just you and the artist. Mm. And you offer them everything you can and they take from it what they need. It's always a collaboration. Yeah. In varying degrees. Okay. Um, and generally what happens is 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 you give them your best. And if there's you know, they might sing you something. They might want the end to be high when you just played it low. They might want you to play a little more bluesy. They might you know mm-hmm. it's just it, it kind of happens in the moment sure. with everybody participating. Okay. And he's like that. He's very, very open. Okay. Speaking of Rick's career, around the Tao album, things started to kind of change a little bit for him. Sound sonically incorporating some different things. Uh, Celebrate Youth is one of my, probably my second favorite Rick Springfield song, actually, behind Christina, awesome. which I don't think you yeah. played on, Christina. But um, tell me about, is there anything special about the creation of Celebrate Youth? It's kind of what you said. He was actually moving away from the rock guitar uh, kind of footprint that he had been using and very enamored with samples. And I think that was probably the first record that was pretty much mostly drum machine out mm-hmm. of his run. So, yeah, that, that he gave up the guitar solos and it was more kind of more like 80s synth, yeah. you know, drum machine pop you know yeah yeah and a lot really a lot lot of layered backgrounds he was really you know he was listening to music and seeing things change and he wanted to change with it i guess when a project like that begins does he come to you as a collaborator and say so tim this is what i'm thinking i'm really feeling the technology that's out there right now and i'm thinking of kind of changing up my style i don't know exactly what that means for you but we'll figure it out or is it more organic than that when you are actually going in the studio with someone, they don't tell you anything until oh. you're sitting sitting down in the moment. You don't. They, nobody. Everybody's so busy that they don't. You just. You know. Yeah. You show up and and if you know you just you just adapt in in the instant that you're hired. Okay. okay. Um, now speaking of all time favorites, my very favorite album of all time is the debut Crowded House album. And oh, yeah. you're, you're on there somewhere. And I don't know where. Yeah. Tell me where. What did you do with Crowded House? Uh, I played on all of it. Uh, I was the second guitar player on all of it. Like if you okay. listen to Don't Dream It's Over, uh-huh. you'll hear Neil Finn playing the rhythm part and all the fi- all the fills, all the guitar fills are me. No way. Oh, no way. And then and then on every song, I did, did stuff too. Uh it was, uh, you know, I, I actually rehearsed with the guys. Mitchell Froome wasn't sure that Neil was uh, a studio savvy guitar player at that point, which he actually was. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so uh, I got to do that first record. And and then after that, Neil, he didn't need another guitar player. He, right. he didn't really need one on that record. But, uh, you know, it was their first record. And they were really open. And, okay. That is crazy. To, I played I... on all that. Yeah. yeah, that's my number one favorite album of all time. Can you think of a moment in the uh, that you're uh, again you're proud of, or a story, or something relating to the? You know, they weren't Neil Finn was a kind of an obscure guy from New Zealand who had some hits down there that no one really knew, and now he's sort of this 
you know, thanks to Fleetwood Mac, he's a little more high profile even than he was before, but he's remained this very beloved sort of almost cult figure. I personally think he's the greatest songwriter of all time. That's my personal feeling. Yeah, what he's a great. You... He's a great lyricist. Um, the thing is, they uh, they they, were, they had a great sense of humor. The drummer had a really great sense of humor. Yeah, and, Paul. Um, yeah, and the the thing about that record is that it basically didn't. It basically died, and then mm. a year later, they released a second single, which was "Don't Dream It's Over." The first single died, and. They went out and toured. It was the same scenario as Cheryl Crow. It basically sat there for a year, and they gave it another shot, and then it exploded. So that it's yeah. it's pretty great. I mean, I don't know that record companies even do that anymore. No, but. no, I don't think so. So, um, yeah. other than just recording that album, was there any kind of long uh, long standing relationship, or did you ever tour with them, or do anything other than just coming in and sort of doing your part during the recording of the album? No, at that point, I was just, I never wanted to tour with anybody because all the best gigs happen, you know, by answering the phone and being in town. So if you, if I, I, I started turning down tours in 1990 um, because, and I got offered some big ones, you know, Phil Collins, Joe Cocker, or a bunch of other people, um, because I wanted to stay in the laboratory. And, and, and touring is mostly, touring as a sideman is not, you know, if it's your business and your name and your records and your gross and your merchandise, it's a worthwhile thing. It's still hard. But yeah. if you're a sideman, it doesn't lead anywhere. And then what happens is all the people, all the relationships you've built up, they go to somebody else when you leave. You basically, I could never handle the idea of being in Wisconsin in a hotel room and, and being called to play on a Bruce Springsteen record or a Tina Turner record or a Michael Jackson record and having to say no I can't because I'm in Wisconsin yeah I just I couldn't I couldn't leave I had to stay that is crazy yeah I've never thought of it like that before and now I mean that's why I think it's pretty miraculous the business you've built for yourself because now of course all the money's in touring and somebody who defiantly does not want to do that has to come up with something entrepreneurial to make up for that and you've managed to do that you know which is kind of miraculous well, well, it, what it was is I've always, I never trusted the music business. And the thing that actually, the reason I do sessions today is because I built up an independent clientele starting in the nineties of people who were in the middle and not at the top. And those people actually are the people who became the new music business when the record business shifted and changed. So I've always had a lot of independent people who come over here. We do their music, they pay me and it, the music, I don't know where some of it ends up, but um, I've always had that. I've always nurtured that clientele. Yeah. Um, but but really, uh, I had a great career. I mean, and in the early 2000s, I just saw these a few people who were t teaching online. They had big businesses. And mm -hmm. I thought if I can even just do a small version of that, um, I'd be really happy. And so I have five employees. I have one full-time film oh, editor, right. two part-time film editors, a webmaster, and a guy who does tablature in Italy. And then I actually pay a lot of the guitar players to appear um, That's amazing. on my site too. So it's it's a real business with a real spend every yeah. month. Yeah. Uh, but it, it uh, and you asked if it was a grind. It's not a grind, but any web-related business always wants more than you give it. There's yeah, nothing I you, I mean, there's always a hundred things like today I shot another Instagram video and I'm finishing a YouTube video and then I'm scheduling videos next week 
And, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's no matter what you give it, it wants mm-hmm. more. So that's the only thing. Yeah. So you do get used to this kind of constant unfinished thing. And then with all of those, like I have 56,000 free members on my website who just, I have their email addresses and they have access to, you know, some free content and some tabs. And so I get emails from people asking about stuff and I try and return, you know, you know, I'll, I'll let them build up and then I'll return 40 emails mm. and, and then, of course, if somebody has a money issue, because when you take the free trial, you have to put down your credit card. Mm-hmm. If somebody has a money issue. We're impeccable about taking care of it instantly. So nice. really any waking hour, if somebody says, hey, uh, you charged my credit card. I don't want this. I say, yeah. fine. Yeah. You're right. We're going to refund you. Or if they say, hey, my password doesn't work. I, I, I get it right to my webmaster yeah. and we turn them around instantly because I, I feel like that's that's crucial. Absolutely. Um, having not, you know, seen too many of these videos, I'm curious if storytelling is ever part of the content in these videos that you put out. Is it, is it, are you incorporating some, you know, here's a little guitar lick that I want to teach you how to do. And this happens to be the lick that I played on this song or whatever. Is there, are there, is there that kind of, uh, you know, color to these videos as well? Uh, there is, however, um, I have to be careful about not using other people's copyrights behind my paywall. Mm. So generally, if I'm doing something like that, I'll do it on YouTube for free. Like I played on Michael Jackson's Black or White. Yeah, I c- couldn't really do that behind the paywall. Um, I may have done. I don't remember. I may have done some some storytelling behind the paywall and just and not played the actual song. Mm-hmm. But generally, if it's something that's associated with a known song. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I make that part of the free content and uh, there is a story always. Yeah. Okay, good, good. I'm a firm believer, especially in this day and age that legacy artists like yourself, the part of the, um, part of the value that you bring out there is not just the music you worked on, but the stories that you have to tell because music is just in a constant faucet streaming at all times, but stories, you don't get those unless you're in a very spe- very special position. And so I, I was curious yeah, if I, that was part yeah. of your thing. You know, it's actually a good idea, and I should probably do it more. Um, now, you mentioned black and white. I was going to ask you about this. Is that is that guitar riff that is run throughout the whole song, is that you? Did you play that? No, no. What it is okay, is that's Bill what I Bittrell. I did Toy Matinee with Bill Bittrell, mm-hmm. and Bill was producing Michael Jackson, and that's Bill Bittrell playing that part. But... Michael was really enamored with um, Dr. Love by uh, Motley Crue at that moment. Mm. And he wanted the bridge of that song to have a feeling like that. Mm. And so that's what I was called in to do. You can hear it on the bridge, um, this heavy metal guitar comes in. Yeah. Um, and that was my contribution. He was there, he was very normal, looked me straight in the eye, very nice, personal. <laughs> uh, you know, we're wearing jeans and a sweater. It was totally unlike the, the Michael Jackson you yeah. saw in the media. Yeah. Um, but it was a very safe environment, you know, just producer, engineer, sure. myself, and Michael. So very, okay. Really, it was a good okay. experience. I want to ask you about another album, and this is another one of my all-time favorites, but I have to admit it's, I probably chalk it into the, like, the guilty pleasure category, and that's Kenny Loggins' Vox Humana album. When I was, I think, 10 or 11 years old, I got a boombox for Christmas, my very first Ghetto Blaster, and the tape that Santa gave me was Vox Humana. And so that was like oh. the first cassette I ever got, and I, uh, I've i listened to that more than most albums ever in my life, and I love it. Tell me about your contributions to the Vox Humana album. 
Well, I don't really remember that many specifics on the record, but I ended up doing five Kenny Loggins albums. Yeah. Um, and I think that might have been the first one. I think it was. I, I, I like you. I was a huge Loggins and Messina fan, and I was a huge fan of Kenny Loggins when he started his solo career. And he became aware of me because of Rick. And because Kenny was always collaborating, really actually to a fault, he would collaborate with everybody on the map all the time. He was co constantly co-writing with people and hiring different musicians to do different songs. It was kind of a cast of thousands. But I benefited from that because he liked he, the guitars on Rick Springfield, and that's why he hired me to do that. And I remember the first time I worked with him, he, uh, he got so excited. He said, yeah, I, I went to Santa Barbara, and he said, yeah, we're going to have to get you a, an apartment up here. And, you know, it's funny. People tell you that, and then they move on. Yeah. It's just natural. Um, but uh, I did end up working with him for the better part of 20 years after that. So in a sense, I didn't need the apartment. Um, yeah. I would always end up doing a song or two on one of his records. And the last thing I did with him, he actually came to my house and we recorded it. So really? it kind of became, yeah, it, it was, it became full circle. I That's play. crazy. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, okay. And then, um, I want to ask you, you mentioned Bruce Springsteen. Now, human touch. This, did you play on the song human touch? I know you played on that album. I'd have to go back and look. Okay. Honestly, I don't remember a lot of these details. I didn't do much on that record. It was more, more important was the credit you know if you play a c chord on a song yeah. and you get your name on it then it's a credit for, for the rest of your life and it was more yeah. that situation that was i just the more than that i worked a lot with roy bitten who's the keyboard mm -hmm. player the piano player in the e street band mm -hmm. roy got me on tons of stuff like stevie nicks and patty Smythe and mm -hmm. stuff that he was involved in he actually for a number of years would would, would include me on stuff that he was involved in and then we did Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell too. Yeah, he didn't he get did. me that one, but but that's that was actually a really big record, and he he was instrumental in that one too. So that's how I got the, the Bruce Springsteen thing, is because Roy Roy was hiring me and, and including me on projects all the time back then. Okay, okay. Um, another thing on your resume is Terrence Trent Darby. I uh, I had yes. him on here a few months ago, and um, he's a he's a trip. How was it working with Terrence Trent Darby? Well, he was actually a very nice guy. That's I remember what I've being heard. At his, I remember being at his house, and he said something really that I thought, you know, it's really right. He said, you know, it's the little guys who always become musicians. And I said, what do you mean? He said, because they can't become athletes. He said, you know, if you're small and you can't become an athlete, you become a musician. And I thought, you know, that really happened, does happen huh. a lot. And that's actually was the truth for me. I wanted to be a basketball player. Really? And at the age of 12, when I realized I wasn't going to make any of the teams, I went into music. Um, but yeah, no, Terrence was a very, very nice guy. Yeah. And I did a record with him that he produced and it kind of stylistically was, you know, kind of uh, outside the box, which I, I don't think helped him at that moment. But it was really fun. He used a lot of local musicians in L.A. Okay. In the record I did with him. Yes, the I Symphony really like or it. Dam. Symphony or Dam, which was That's right. viewed yeah. as sort of a creative comeback. I really like the song, um, Do You Love Me Like You Say You Do? Uh, I don't know if you play on that or not. Maybe you don't even know. But anyway, I, I saw him in concert back in the day. I always really respected him. And then he just, you know, he went off on his own path and he's been there ever since. And I find him a really interesting character. I kind of miss the old Terrence sometimes, you know, but I think he's needs to, feels like he needs to do what he's doing right now. So... Anyway, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of a lot of people who have success. They they just still don't fit in. The success happens, and then 
they don't it's a game that has to be played and they just are not willing to play the game and i don't fault them for that i mean now one of my listeners actually a german fellow named uve reith he requ- he requested you as a guest recently and i asked him to send oh. me over some questions and uh, so i wanted to incorporate a couple of those into the into this conversation sure. one of them in particular was about you collaborating with Richard Page, and I believe, are you working on, is there a third Mr. Mr. album out there somewhere being worked on that you're a part of? Well, what happened was Richard came over um, recently, and we recorded, there, there are three new songs that they're going to give away to their fans, so uh-huh. not a whole record. Okay. But, uh, you know, everybody will know when these songs are out, and they'll be available to everyone. It's not about the money. It's just they they decided they wanted to do it, and they don't have a guitar player. And the thing is, Richard has been coming over here doing his songs for about a decade. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, even then, he he actually I auditioned for Mister Mister after Steve Ferris quit, and mm-hmm. I almost got it. I mm-hmm. ended up hiring Buzzy Feeden, but I was like one away from getting it. I've known those guys forever, and Richard, mm-hmm. like I said, Richard has, you know, he comes over here and records his songs okay. frequently, so. It's yeah. comfortable. Yeah. Good. I love them. I had Steve Ferris on here actually back in May, I believe it was. Yeah, he's a and great guitar player. Steve he Ferris. is. And what a what an interesting second life. I mean, he lives like in Nebraska and uh, the government hires him to come out and plan wetlands and, uh, you know, forests and how to manage these areas better. And it's very fascinating yeah. what he's up to right now. But but yeah, they don't. He, he, they'd he, rather work with he, you going forward than him, I guess, huh? Or is it just more convenient? Uh, that's you know, I wouldn't want to gossip about the okay. situation, but you know, bands are always filled with you know, yeah, um, power struggles or sure. whatever. So yeah, it's just it's. But okay. but the the thing is, you know, I just go back to the fact Richard has been coming here and recording his songs for yeah. A decade. Yeah, understood. Um, and Steve was very upfront about all of that, actually. he was. It was a really great conversation we had. Uh, now, another one yeah. I want to... Do you mind? Is this okay? I'm just throwing things from your resume at you because I love hearing these of stories. Of course. Is that yeah, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Of course. Um, yeah. n- now, tell me about Seal. I don't know what album of Seals you worked on, but um, somewhere in there is some Seal and some Trevor Horn. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's, it's Seal. I think it was just his name. Yeah. And it might have been the fourth record. Um, uh, I worked with Trevor Horn for 15 years. Um, the first Trevor Horn session I did was a Rod Stewart record, um, oh. which uh, that he was doing. And and then I ended up like, you know, working with him for a long time after that. And I always wanted to play on a Seal record. And finally, I did at Trevor's house. And, uh, you know, I don't know. The thing about studio work is that it's... In many ways, it's like showing up at a library. It's very, very, you know, everything's quiet and everybody's studious and you do the work and, you know, and, you know, it's, um, so I don't, I don't really have anything remarkable to say about Seal. Other than mm. He was really nice too. I mean, really. Okay. The, really for me, more the, 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 the point of Seal for me was more Trevor Horn. I mean, yeah. I would do all these movie movies with trevor horn and on all these different records and the, the seal stuff i would drive up to trevor's house in bel-air that house actually burned down yeah, i heard about in it in the bel-air fire there were about five houses that burned down trevor's was one of them because he was right on the edge of the on a cliff just a yeah. cliff that was like you look, look down the cliff and it'd be like oh gosh this is yeah. you know so um 
that was at Trevor's house. Trevor always had uh, uh, the best gear up there, yeah. and he would always have teams of people. He would bring in teams of people from the UK, and they would camp out there. And it was a big house with like seven bedrooms. And, um, uh, yeah, I was just, mm. I'm not, you know, I was just uh, one of the uh, one of the many who did overdubs on a on a Seal record. Okay. Trevor Horn is my very favorite producer of all time. I know I keep throwing these favorites of all time things out here, but you've been involved in so many things that matters to me. And Trevor is my favorite producer of all time. That 80s stuff, especially like ABC and Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Seal and Malcolm McLaren well, and all okay. those things then, he did. Then, that... then let, let's talk about him for a second because that I can weigh in on. Oh, nice. The thing about, the, the thing about Trevor is his objectivity, okay? Mm-hmm. So the thing about Trevor Horn is that when you're working with him, you're trying to do something that he's not going to erase, hmm. because he he will he would there are instances where like he would hire a drummer, and spend an enormous amount of money, you know the top drummer in town, the top studio, okay. overdub drums on every song, and spend tens of thousands of dollars getting real drums on all the songs, and then decide a week later that it wasn't right and he would not use any of it. And so when you, it was just objectivity. He always listened objectively. It would never get invested in any time he spent. It was always about making the the record what it was supposed to be in his mind. Mm -hmm. And so he was constantly throwing away stuff. When I first worked on the Rod Stewart record with him, we were using 48 track digital machines and it was slave H. So A, B, C, D, E, F, H. So seven times 48, that's, that's where he was at with the track count at that moment. Wow. So it, it, you know, he would collect all of these parts and ideas and sounds, and then he was never attached to any of them. It was objectivity. Yeah. I did an Eros Ramzotti record. Eros is a really big Italian artist and they hired him and he plugged in a bass and started playing bass because he's a bass player. And they were astounded that there wasn't this, the most magical bass sound in the world. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and he was like you know he, he was he's much more pragmatic and you know much more blue collar in the studio just he would just keep working until the thing became amazing yeah and yeah. what happened to him is that he started doing movies because that was the only place where he could find the budgets yeah to actually go through this this exhaustive mm-hmm. lengthy process on every song um and then eventually he just started doing his own projects because the budgets you know the, the way he worked is very expensive as you might imagine yeah and i've heard from people who have pro- had him produce them i had a member of frankie goes to hollywood on here and he's got a bitter taste in his mouth a little bit because of uh he's never seen a lot of money because of the debt that he got put into unfortunately well um, and they had that yeah they had uh businesses and record labels and production companies and you know, with a lot of the stuff he did, there were contracts signed where he got a piece of it. Yeah, it's I tricky. don't know even what to say. It's yeah, it's yeah, tricky. it's tricky. But you know, the thing about that record actually was my first kind of side by side work with Dan Huff, who's an amazing mm-hmm. guitar player. He's, mm-hmm. He came into play. But the guy that got me that record was Brian Foraker, and he engineered it. So that's that's I remember Brian more than Robert. That doesn't mean he wasn't, you know, totally at the helm. It's just. Yeah. Um, I remember Brian being the, the the one that I would interact with the most. Okay, okay. Um, you know, I still we're running out of time, and I've got a list here, but I I think I might be missing a better opportunity here to ask you what some of your most memorable stories are. Maybe they pertain to music I love, and maybe they don't. But what are some, because my listeners, we love to hear great stories, 
And uh, I'm just curious what some of the ones that come, you know, are top of mind for you are. Hey gang, I thought I'd break in here for a minute just for a quick midsection. Plus gives you a chance to listen to Souls by Rick Springfield. That's one of my favorite of all of his tunes. Uh, and one that gets overlooked too. I feel like we don't, you know, you don't hear this that much about this song anymore. Before anyone asks, I, in case you're curious, I had asked him if he would be willing to come back on and do a deep dive with us. But unfortunately he turned me down. So that's not likely to happen. Anyway, that could have been fun. I thought I would read some more reviews. Um, I, I don't think we've read any Facebook reviews for a while. And uh, I don't actually even remember where I left off. So hopefully I haven't forgotten anybody. But this one is from Greg Blanchard. These are all short, by the way. Greg says, Candid conversations that are fully invested in a love for music and curiosity about how that biz works. Or sometimes doesn't. Generally long inter- uh, episodes worth the time. Good. I hope the length doesn't bother anybody. I mean, like I've said before, I figured this is like a long form. This is an opportunity for people to, you know, tell a whole story here. Uh, another one from Hamilton Diaz. Hope I'm saying that right. Best podcast. Wow. Best podcast about music. That's impressive. Thank you, Hamilton. Uh, Terrence Veit. Veit. Terrence, you comment on here a lot. I never know exactly how to say your last name. Forgive me. Great podcast. I've been trying to listen to all the old episodes and put all my other podcasts on hold. That's great. Thank you. Uh, You know, one of these days I thought about creating a bracket and doing like some kind of a March Madness type bracket of what people's favorite episodes ever are. You know, Uh, there's a ton of them by now. I mean, over 250, but maybe there's a way to do this where, you know, we break it down to the best of a certain year or a certain month or I'm just always curious which ones are really resonating with people. As you, I mean, that's I, like I always say, that's why I try to cover as many decades and genres and people as I can to sort of just appeal to everybody, you know? All right, one more review. This is from Ken Cole. Ken's a guy, uh, I love Ken. He and another one of our listeners, Dave Peterson, were in Denver a couple of months ago and we went and saw Joe Jackson in concert. It was great. Uh, Excellent evening, and then the very next day was when Mark Hollis died. That was a surreal 24-hour period there. Anyway, Ken says, Great journeys and conversation to those obscure fringes of our musical youth. That's a good way of putting it. Thank you, Ken. Anyway, um, so those are some reviews. Like I said before, um, I hope I didn't miss anybody on Facebook. If I did, feel free to go put one on iTunes. I think it probably carries a little bit more weight on there. I don't know. Everyone always says this is how this stuff works and, you know, that's how people find you and it gets you, uh, you you rise up on searches and stuff like that. I don't know if any of that's true. That's just what everybody says. Maybe it is true. But anyway, if you want to leave us a review, I would love it. Again, it doesn't have to be five stars. You can say whatever you want. Be as critical as you want. It's okay. Yen and I have thin skin, or thick skin, I should say. And then uh, lastly, as always, there's just as a reminder, there are t-shirts out there and pop sockets and sweatshirts all of those things are on amazon go on amazon and type in the hustle podcast merch and you're bound to find all of it i have been considering a lot of you have come back saying well why don't you just do a patreon page and i've thought about that i might one of these days my my fear about the patreon page is that unlike someone like pat francis i don't feel like i'm giving you enough back you know other than 
a lot of content. I'm not, we don't always have giveaways or, you know, drawings or anything like that. And I feel kind of guilty having you put in a couple of bucks every month or whatever, if you're not getting anything back outside of the content, which hopefully you guys deem that to be worth your while and valuable. So anyway, I don't know. Once I get over myself and that feeling, I might just start a Patreon page if anyone wants to. There's no way Yan and I are going to get rich doing this or anything, but it is nice to offset the cost for things like when someone does win something and there's post, uh, you know, to mail it or the uh, hosting fees for the website or anything like the software, the gear or whatever. It's not a ton, but it, you know, it helps. So anyway, uh, that's it for this time. Let's get back to the second half, part two of my conversation with Tim Pierce. Something I was thinking about in relation to you, I was curious what you view your signature song to be. If, if, a, if a song comes on the radio how, and we think that's Tim Pierce right there, that's the great Tim Pierce, what would it be? So I, I got to do uh, a Roger Waters record uh, called Amused to Death. And that record, it was in the era where you basically, you know, he did not have a ceiling to his budget. So I think he spent about 18 months on it. And it may have been it may have been 18 months mixing alone. I don't know. But but uh, I remember tracking the songs and doing a bunch of songs. And my wife called me after the record was done because she had heard one of the songs and she was just just complimenting me just into the stratosphere about this guitar solo that I played. And it may have been the song Amused to Death. Um, and at a certain point in the conversation, I realized that she was talking about Jeff Beck. <laughs> <laughs> because Jeff Beck had come in, of course, and, uh-huh. and played on the record. And he did an amazing solo. And I think it, it might have been Amused to Death. But, um, you know, they, they hired Jeff Beck. Uh, and, and Jeff was famous for basically buying a guitar at a music store when he would come to LA. Somebody would ask him to do a session mm-hmm. and uh, they would pay him a very high daily rate. I remember the exact number, which I will not reveal. Mm-hmm. And he would basically on the way to the session, he would go to a music store and buy a Stratocaster. Really? And that's the guitar that he would show up and play. And then when he showed up to play, it was of course this incredible thing because yeah. it really is all in his hands. Mm-hmm. So, so that was an amazing thing for me. I did a lot of the uh, tracking, and I think even on that song, I had done a solo, and I was so proud of the solo I had done. And I, 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 I said, you know, Roger, what did you think of that? And he said, hmm, sounded very modern. <laughs> and I knew, I knew that it was just a placeholder, then somebody uh-huh. else would be coming in, and that somebody was Jeff Beck. So I had no problem with that. Okay, that was fun. I've done a lot of records with Meatloaf, and but I did his his biggest kind of comeback record, which was Bad Out of Hell 2. Mm-hmm. And Meatloaf, a lot of the Meatloaf records were basically uh, Jim Steinman kind of doing all the music and, and stuff. And Jim was kind of a uh, an all-night person. And so he wouldn't even really wake up till midnight. midnight. You would start the session... Uh, let me start that again. So I did a lot of meatloaf records, and uh, the one of the one of the biggest meatloaf, well, the biggest meatloaf record I did was his comeback, uh, "Bad Out of Hell 2, which did like six million copies in the U.S. or something. I, maybe I, you'd have to check it out. But and a lot of meatloaf's music was created by Jim Steinman, and so Jim was the producer, and he would work endlessly on arrangements. And it was another record that did had no ceiling these records mm-hmm. you know you could basically spend whatever you want and take as long as you want that's how the, the industry was and 
Jim really lived at night. And so the session would start at 6 p.m., but it wouldn't really start till 8 p.m. And uh, Jim really wouldn't wake up and get energetic till midnight. So it was hard on me because I've always been kind of a daytime person. Okay. And at a certain point in Bad Out of Hell 2, I had so much work going on during the day at other studios mm -hmm. that I just couldn't do it anymore. And I kind of let go of it. And I think Eddie Martinez finished the rest of it. Another great guitar player. And it's good that he did because it's, it was a, just a great, you know, yeah. other flavor to have on the record. But the thing about Jim that was amazing is that he was one of those guys who was famous for ordering everything off the menu at a restaurant. So when we would show up at 6 p.m., we would, you know, do, do a little bit of work. Uh -huh. And then there'd be the dinner order. And everybody was encouraged and allowed to order a backup meal. Okay, so mm -hmm. you would or you would go. It would be a great restaurant, someplace quite hoity-toity, uh -huh. <laughs> and you would order your dinner, and then he would go. Okay, so what's your backup meal? And then you would have to order, you know, whatever. If you ordered the filet mignon, you would order the lobster as uh -huh. your backup meal, so that everybody had a backup meal, so that he could taste everybody's. <laughs> you know, it's it, it, he, it was like it was like this incredible thing and then there'd be desserts and there, there might be a pre-order to the the dinner order just just so that you know nobody would go hungry and uh -huh. it was one of those things you know you, you could you can imagine some probably fifteen hundred dollar um yeah uh dinner bills you know on a daily basis wow uh, which which because with a with a huge artist like that and all the record sales associated with it just got absorbed into mm -hmm. The record budget it was not really not really a big thing that's crazy um, those are the days i remember doing a bruce springsteen record where um i was so nervous prior to it because it, it was at the time when he had just shed the e street band he was huge and he was just trying he was doing a new record his first record of his career mm -hmm. i think without the e street band mm -hmm. and i think i was the only other guitar player who was going to appear on it i was so excited mm. And I was so excited that I had this giant rash break out on the side of my face. <laughs> <laughs> so I went in there with this big red splotch on the side of my face. And it's the kind of thing you're always going to know the chords. Yeah. To a Bruce Springsteen song. It wasn't that. It was just, you know, stylistically, it was very, very particular about, you know, what he did. So uh, the session went well. But I remember him sitting there uh, and, and saying he had just got his first cell phone. And he, he talked about being on his motorcycle on the way to the session. And basically, he wanted to make a call, so he parked his, his motorcycle and sat on somebody's front lawn and made his <laughs> cell phone call. And he was super, super excited about that. <laughs> but but the, the, thing about, the thing about him was that he is constantly writing songs. So when you, mm -hmm. when you hear a Bruce Springsteen record and you hear 12 songs, there's there have been 80 songs that mm -hmm. have been written for that record because he never stops. I mean, the lyrics, there are lyrics everywhere. When you walk into the actual studio, there are handwritten lyrics everywhere. Really? That's okay. pretty impressive. He never, never, ever stops writing. Yeah. I want to ask uh, you then, specifically about that. Um, Human Touch, the song Human Touch is one of my very favorite Bruce songs. And the album version of it that was not the single version from the radio goes into an extended guitar solo for the last um, minute or so of the song. It's great. Is that you? No, that's Bruce. That's Bruce. Okay. Okay. He actually can play guitar pretty well. Yeah, I, I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, and I've done I've done a bunch of Rod Stewart records. One yeah. of my favorite one of my favorite moments with Rod Stewart. Um, the best I, I probably have told you this, but the, the, my favorite Rod Stewart song I did is "Broken Arrow." It's a Robbie Robertson uh, song, and it was on the radio a lot. But my one of my favorite moments with Rod Stewart is probably like the fifth record I had done with them. Um, we actually had a conversation about how we both really liked going to this particular drugstore and buying reading glasses. <laughs> now, that's the most, I mean, I, I, I bring out the, the ordinary things out of people, I guess, but, but we, you know, we were talking about how we love this particular drugstore for their reading glasses. It's pretty oh, great. That's excellent. See, that's the kind of color that we would never get elsewhere. And it's yeah. honest. That's why I like these yeah. stories. Okay. Yeah. And then did we talk about Bon Jovi at all? Well, you mentioned, I know you played on Runaway. I, we didn't, we skimmed over how that even happened though. Okay, good. That's, that's a good story. So yeah. uh, when I was 23, I had been in LA for two years and I had a bunch of stuff happen at the same time. Uh, I did a John Waite record mm -hmm. called Ignition that still stands up as a great record, it even is. to this day. Yep. And I also did a record with Jonathan Kane's wife from Journey, Tawny Kane, and that was a good record too. Really mm -hmm. nice to be part of that. Uh, and then I also did um, Runaway and a bunch of other songs with John Bon Jovi. And I also did Rick Springfield's record and mm -hmm. I joined his band mm -hmm. and started touring with Rick. So there were four things mm -hmm. that, that were really, that all happened kind of the, at the same time that, that gave me kind of a big launch when I was 23 years old. And the reason I got to do Runaway was I was doing John Waite's Ignition record at the power station in New York City for Neil Giraldo as a producer. And Neil was super, super flying high at that point mm -hmm. um, because of Pat Benatar. And Neil decided not to do any of the guitars on the record. I did all the guitars, which was mm -hmm. pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. But he produced the record and he guided me through all the guitar parts. He kind of taught me, when I really think about this, he really taught me to play rhythm guitar in some ways because he knew he knew how to, to record rhythm guitar parts and how to layer rhythm guitar parts. Cool. And because I was at the power station for six weeks doing uh, John Waite's record, that was the period of time when John Bon Jovi was up stairs living and cleaning the studio at nights and just hanging out right and it was also the period of time when tony bon jovi uh was doing demos for john bon jovi so they asked me to come back and join a band that had some great players in it aldo nova and roy bitten mm -hmm. and frankie LaRocca, and i think hugh mcdonald played bass mm. um and we did probably eight songs and one of those songs ended up being on bon jovi's first record so out of the master demos that we did for John Bon Jovi, uh, one of them ended up on the record. And right. John, John came out here um, with his keyboard player, David David Bryant, I think, mm -hmm. Bryant, I think it yeah. is. And mm -hmm. they were looking for a band in L.A. because I think he was kind of tired of his hometown guys. Mm -hmm. But he eventually did the right thing and, and hired the right guys to be in his band, one of them being Richie Sambora. Sure. Um, but uh, it was it was really fun to actually have one of those master demos end up credited on, you know, the Bon Jovi record. It was yeah, great. That's excellent. Um, I thought of some I wanted to throw some names at you just to see if it sparks any memories. If it doesn't, that's fine. Um, the other day, I don't remember where I was, but I heard Belinda Carlisle's Heaven on Earth for the first time in a while. And uh, uh -huh. I believe you're on there. And uh -huh. I. 
And when it came on, I thought, oh, I think this is Tim. I got to kind of zoom in on the, the guitar aspect of the song. And it's it's rockier than I remembered from, you know, than I would have, have imagined. Is that you throughout that whole song? Or do you remember anything about that session? Uh, my only memory of the Belinda Carlisle record was her producer, Rick Knowles. And it, it, Rick was kind of a cast of thousands guy. Mm -hmm. So if you if you actually look at that song there might be two or three guitar players okay um certainly uh, certainly on the record there were probably a half a dozen guitar players because it was it was kind of a, a an industry at that mm. time you know finishing records for an artist like that finding songs booking sessions he was in con in a constant state of flux and just bringing bringing in whoever was available and whoever was interested and you know things were changing all the time and mm -hmm. and so, yeah, I, I couldn't give you any specifics okay. on that. Do you know why people called you? Was it your availability? Was it one or two things in particular that you excelled at above and beyond other guitarists? What, what was the magic of you? Well, I think in my particular case, I've always played from the heart. Mm. And it's, it's primarily, um, if I play a simple guitar part, it sounds like I mean it. And that's not an easy thing for some musicians to do. Frequently when musicians get really good at what at their, you know, particular mm -hmm. instrument, mm -hmm. they have a hard time playing simple things with like their life depends on it. So if you want to take that a step further and go, I played simple parts like my life depended on it, I really, really went the extra mile. And I did it emotionally. Like it's it's a hard thing. You can't exactly teach it. Mm -hmm. But if you play something really simple from the heart, that's that's what people want. And yeah. in that era, I was just I was also very, very um, easy to get along with. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's it, all the things you would think of, you know, easy to collaborate with, easy to, you know. Right. The thing about being a studio musician is when your first idea gets rejected, you have to fight the urge to be resentful about that or to get your feelings hurt or to be you know, downstruck by that or mm -hmm. debilitated by that. And you have to come up with a new part right away happily and offer it. So right. I, I think that's part of it. Some of the other players might have gone, well, hey, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. You mm -hmm. know, I would go, oh, sure. Well, let's try this. I think I think really that had a lot to do with it is that when somebody wanted something different than I was giving them, I would I would adapt okay. and I would pivot. And I would do that five times in a row if necessary. That, that's that's probably one of the things. That, OK, it. You know, one of the reasons I worked so much in the 90s was when Nirvana came along and changed the entire style of music in kind of one fell swoop, I was the guy who could sound like the band player. So I was a studio musician, but I could also sound like the guy who was in the band. A little less polished, a little more simple, uh, a little more, uh, you know, heartfelt. Okay. Okay. I'm just imagining LA at that time. There's got to be a thousand guitarists there, just all jonesing for the same job, for the job that you have. And I'm thinking if somebody's producing a record and they're like, you know, there's a thousand choices, but we want Tim Pierce because Tim brings X to the table. What is that? And it's probably just a track record of success, a track record of reliability and no drama. And so you become you just become a that first call because we know we can count on Tim. It sounds like that's a, that's a big part of it. But and there are signposts along the way. I know that a lot of my early 90s work came out of 
the fact that I had played guitar on Don't Dream It's Over by a Crowded House. Yeah. And that was that was like the favorite song of all songwriters here in L.A. Mm -hmm. And so you could you, you say that and you go, oh, this is not the guy who plays jazz. This is a guy who like actually plays song. Mm -hmm. And so that and then so you can parlay that stuff into, you know, other opportunities. OK. Last but not least, give us one more plug. Tell us about Tim Guitar, Tim Pierce Guitar, where people want to go, if they want to get involved. One more plug for your business. Oh, that's so nice of you. What I, what it really is, is if you want to learn guitar and you have a little bit of skill. I mean, it's not for beginners because I, I haven't addressed that yet. But if you, if you can already play guitar a little bit and you want to get better at the electric guitar in particular... Uh, you can check out my YouTube channel for the free content. You can take the 14-day free trial in the master class for the uh, premium content. And um, it's just a place of learning for guitar players. And that, that's my new uh, calling in life. Mm -hmm. uh, I still do lots of sessions, but moving forward, this is this is my new business. And I'm, I'm very excited because I get to actually be front and center. I spent my whole life you know, mm -hmm. in the background. And, and in this particular venture, I get to be right up front. So I'm really sure. enjoying it. Okay. There you have it, Tim Pierce. Hope you guys enjoyed that. I I hope I didn't press him. I worry sometimes that I was annoying him with my constant pressing for, for stories. Because, you know, that's what we like to do here. We like to hear these stories, especially stories of collaboration with people that we really love and know. And uh, there just wasn't a lot there. And so anyway, I'm sorry, Tim, if that upset you. And I'm sorry, listeners, if that bummed you out. But anyway, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff in here, especially around Tim's business. Hope you enjoyed that. Thank you, Yan the Man, for all that you do. And uh, we will talk to you guys later.